this morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you'll take your Bible, turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 5. You know, there are certain moments in world history that now, with the benefit of hindsight, prove to be essential moments that shape the way the world operates today. One such moment, of course, is the appointment of Winston Churchill as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Under the leadership of his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain, the nation had mishandled the growing tensions between them and the the German tyrannical leader, Adolf Hitler. Chamberlain had taken too soft approach towards Hitler and lost the confidence of the nation and the government, and that led to his resignation. This, of course, paved the way for the man that would mark history, Winston Churchill. Unlike the passive Chamberlain, Churchill, both in appearance and personality, was much more like a bulldog. He rallied the morale of the nation and stood unwaveringly toe-to-toe against Hitler night after night, though the people were bombed horrendously. He took the helm of a country ill-prepared for war and on the edge of destruction, but in God's providence, he used the leadership of that fallen man to save not only the nation, but to unite the allied forces and therefore change the shape of world history. That's one of my favorite portions of history to study because it reminds me of the importance of qualified, gifted leaders. Because times of testing will come. And when they do, unqualified leadership will show itself and to be unable to lead through that time of testing. This is true, of course, on the world stage with nations and governments, but it's also true when it comes to the local church. And it's because of that that the Apostle Peter includes in his first letter one of the most important passages in all of Scripture on the role of elders in the local church. In fact, the the people receiving this first epistle are under a great weight of persecution. It's a difficult time for these believers. In fact, the theme of the entire letter is standing firm through suffering as the people are suffering for their faith in Christ. Peter writes to a group of Christians scattered across the the empire. In 1 Peter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are believers who were under a great weight of persecution. Many of them had lost their homes and had to leave their jobs to uproot their families to move because of this persecution. Many believe the persecution was spurred on by the the wicked emperor Nero because there was a fire that broke out that burned a large portion of the empire and he blamed it on the Christians, though they had nothing to do with it. And so they came under this weight of persecution. They're pressed out of their their homes into other areas. And the Apostle Peter wants to write and encourage them to stand firm in their faith. And part of standing firm in their faith is also understanding how the church is to respond not only externally to the world, but how it's to operate internally. Specifically, what kind of leaders are needed to lead Christ's church at all times, but particularly in times of great persecution. And so in the first four chapters of the letter, Peter instructs the people on how to live as witnesses to the lost world as they endure this time of testing and trial. But in chapter 5, where we'll be this morning, he begins that chapter by looking inward and talking to the church about its leadership 
and the role of the elders that are to lead that church. This is now the second message we have done on the role of elders, but it's crucial for us all to understand how Christ has not only set up his church to operate, but how the elders are to fulfill the role that God has given to them. Now keep in mind that though these verses in 1 Peter 5, 1-4 are directed clearly to elders, there's much that each of us can take away and should take away from these instructions. And I will do my best to point that out along the way. But don't, don't zone out and think that this is only for elders because though it's primarily pointed at them, there's much that we can glean. In fact, the Apostle Peter reminds us of the perspective that we should all have of how precious the church of Jesus Christ is, calling it even the flock of God, his precious sheep. That should have an impact on each one of us this morning. Now, with that in mind, I want us to read our text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. The Apostle Peter begins, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Now this text revolves around one primary command. And the theme of these verses is very simply this. Christ's church must be led by qualified elders who lovingly lead the people by their own example. But he's going to key in in verse 2 on one particular command that really is the glue that holds this passage together. But in verse 1, he, as, as Peter and Paul so often do, he leads up to that command with the motivation. He's going to give us his credentials. Why is it that these elders should listen to Peter in his command? Well, that brings us to the first part of our text in verse 1, the credentials of Peter. Verse 1 begins with the word therefore, which clearly ties it into the context that I just laid out for us. Because the people are under this heavy weight of persecution, they're suffering. It says in verse 19 of chapter 4, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Clearly still talking about this suffering that they're enduring. Therefore, because you're under this, this weight and, and are to continue following the Lord, you need to understand something. And he points at the elders and says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Now, I won't go back through all that we've looked at, of course, but just as a reminder, in case you haven't been with us, in the New Testament, the Bible teaches that each local church is to be led by a plurality of qualified elders. We've also looked at the fact that the Greek word for pastor, elder, and overseer are interchangeable. There are three different Greek words, but they are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. So a pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor, and we'll use them interchangeably in our church. I'll use them interchangeably this morning. 
This is the way that churches are to be run. In fact, the, the Bible even says there, there will be some of those who continue to work in their, their secular job and serve in addition to that as elders, and others will, will receive some money from the church so that they can quit their secular job and focus on studying, teaching, and caring for the body. We see this in places like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It says, the, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Referring here to particularly those elders who have quit their secular employment to focus specifically on studying and teaching the people, and he talks about the labor being worthy of his wages. We've also seen in Titus chapter 1 where Paul instructs Titus there. He says, for, for this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. As I pointed out when we went through that text, elders, notice, is plural. Every city is singular. The idea then is a plurality of elders in each local church. Now, with that in mind, Peter's writing here to the elders in each one of these churches that will receive the letter. Again, as I read the beginning of the letter, this goes out to several different regions within the Roman Empire. And so with every single church that receives this, when he says, I exhort the elders among you, he means the elders over each individual church in this large region. And so he begins now, he introduces the fact that he's talking to elders, but now he gives us these credentials that give the motivation for obedience to his command. Specifically, three credentials that Peter has. Credential number one, Peter himself is an elder. He's an elder. He begins here, if you look at the text, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Peter, as it turns out, though he is much more than an elder, being an apostle, serves in that role in his local body. He understands what it is to be an elder of a local church. And so he identifies here with these elders to say, I too, your fellow elder, exhort you in this role. Secondly, he's not only an elder, he's a witness. This is the second credential. He's, he says, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, I believe this gets more towards the authority that Peter has as an apostle. So he identifies with him as a fellow elder, but now he steps back and, and mentions the fact that he himself possesses one of the key qualifications for apostleship. You remember in Acts chapter 1 when, when Judas has now uh, betrayed Jesus and he has died, they add Matthias and they, they search for a man that meets certain qualifications one of those qualifications is he had to be a witness of the ministry and suffering of Christ. And so I believe that's what Peter's pointing to here. He's been a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He, he lived with Christ. He saw him suffer in his ministry. He was there with him in the garden, saw him suffering and laboring in prayer, even bleeding drops of blood. He was there when Jesus was arrested. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not Peter was there when Christ was on the cross. And we know the apostle John certainly was there. But certainly Peter was a witness not only of the ministry of Christ, but of the suffering of Christ and, of course, his resurrection as well. So he identifies with him as an elder. He mentions this qualification as an apostle, as one who's witnessed the sufferings of Christ. And then thirdly, credential number three, he's also a participant. A participant. Specifically, he says, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be 
revealed. You remember that Peter was there in Matthew 17 in the at the transfiguration as Jesus is transformed before his eyes and he sees the, the glory of Jesus and now he longs with anticipation of the day when he will not only again behold the glory of Christ but be transformed himself into that glory receiving perfect righteousness. This of course is another credential that identifies him with the hope that these elders have indeed that every believer has. We long for that day. We praise God that we are partakers. We will be partakers of the glory that is to be revealed. When Christ is revealed, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him. He will make us perfectly righteous. By the way, let's just stop here for a moment. Let me ask, do you look longingly with anticipation for that day? When you think of of your life and and how to to walk through difficulties and trials, do you, like Peter, turn your eyes, your gaze to the fact that no matter what I'm experiencing in this life, I am a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. We ought to live with the same anticipation, the same readiness for the return of Christ. That is our hope. But now, having sort of grease the wheels, if you will. He's got us ready for this command. What is it, Peter, that you're exhorting the elders to do? Well, this brings us to part two, where we'll really focus our time, the responsibility of elders. The responsibility. And here's the command. I exhort the elders among you, and then jump down to verse two. Here's the exhortation. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. It's important to note that this is the only command in these first four verses. This is the heart of the elder's role. The elder is to be a shepherd. At the very basis, the foundation of eldership is this call to shepherd the flock of God. And of course, this illustration of shepherding has deep roots. This did not just occur to Peter. This is something that was deeply embedded in his mind and the mind of those who understood the Old Testament. The the call to shepherd God's people, the the idea of God's people as being sheep, was even a way that God referred to uh, the people of Israel. Think of Ezekiel chapter 34, where where the the, the leaders of the people had been negligent. and, and, And God says, judgment is coming upon you because of your harsh leadership. And then he commits himself to bring a new shepherd, Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24. Then I, this is God speaking, will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. He says something similarly to the people through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This was the expectation that that the, the leaders of Israel had been negligent in their duties. They would receive judgment and be held accountable. But God says, I will never forsake my people. I myself will raise up another who will shepherd them in the way that is consistent with my character. Fast forward then to John chapter 10. 
Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and what does he say of himself? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on in the same chapter, John 10, 14 to 16, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd." Jesus Christ, then, is the great shepherd who was prophesied of old. He came and fulfilled that role in part in his earthly ministry, but will one day completely fulfill every promise that God has given of the great good shepherd. Peter knows this. He knows the Old Testament prophecy. He's seen it in the person of Christ. But there's something else here, another layer of importance as we think about this command to shepherd the flock of God because this has to bring Peter back to one of the most humbling and intimate encounters he's ever had with Christ in his life. Because you may remember, as Jesus prophesied, Peter denied his Lord three times before the crucifixion, even denying to know him, denying all association with him. And then in shame, flees, weeping, But after the resurrection, Jesus appears to all of the apostles and then specifically after breakfast takes Peter aside and has a one-on-one intimate conversation with him. And what does he say? John chapter 20, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. This was not only the restoration of Peter, it was that. That's why we have the threefold repetition of the question. But it also would become for Peter the high calling that was laid upon his life that he would then pass down here and say, This has not only been the calling of my life, but it is the calling of every person who would seek to lead the people of God. The command from the good shepherd, the great shepherd, to every under shepherd is this shepherd my sheep. The illustration of shepherding sheep brings to us the best mental image of what all is included in the role of eldering or pastoring. It's helpful because if you just picture a shepherd and the things that he is to do for physical sheep, it helps you understand in the spiritual sense what a a pastor, elder of a local church is to do. When we think of it that way, we come up with with four primary uh, roles that flow out of shepherding. Obviously, the, the pastor, elder, is to lead the people. He's to protect the people from false doctrine and sin. He's to care for the people. And, of course, feed the people or teach them the truth. These are the the key elements of shepherding. And this, again, has these deep roots in the Old Testament, in the ministry of Christ, and in his commission 
to Peter, who now commissions these elders to do the same. But notice specifically, he says, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. Those words of God are crucial for us to understand as we think about this command. Because again, the people of the church don't belong to anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. They are Christ's sheep. The elders have no ownership over the people. They themselves are sheep. But they are commanded here to play the role of under-shepherds. With one chief shepherd who is the shepherd, but then fulfilling his love and care for the church through the hands and feet of local under-shepherds. Therefore, the, the shepherds of the church have to be committed to this book because if these are Christ's sheep, it means that shepherds are not allowed to shepherd sheep according to their own desires and their own plans. The shepherd's role is to take the word of Christ and to teach that to the people and to shepherd the people in accordance with what Christ has said. But not only that, not only is this a, a word of warning and caution for all who would undertake the role of elder or shepherd, it's a reminder for us. This should reorient our perspective. Do you think about these people sitting next to you in this room shoulder to shoulder as the flock of God, as the sheep of Christ, sons and daughters of the King, blood-bought, redeemed sinners who he loves who he set his love on from eternity past. Is that how you think about the people in this room and how you should interact with them, serve them? Do you use your gifts in the church to care for these people because they are the people of God? Are you careful in how you speak to them and about them? Are you careful to pray for them in, in private and in person because these are the precious people of God? You see, this should affect the way each one of us thinks about our role in the church. It's not just the elders who need to think of the body of Christ in this way. I would encourage you to reorient your perspective again. Remind yourself again of the, the sweet thing that this church is. Not just this local church, but the church. But we have this local expression in which we get to fellowship, serve, pray for, love, enjoy, worship with the people of God. Let that sink in. This is how Peter says elders should think about these people and therefore it's how all of us should think about one another and how we treat each other and care for each other. But he gives us even more specific information here in verse 2 because he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Among you. Now, don't overlook those words. Because the words among you help us understand who exactly each elder body is to be overseeing or shepherding. It's, it's not every Christian. Just because someone is an elder or pastor doesn't give them authority to be the, the internet, internet pastor or the, the pastor of every church in the area. No, the authority that that elder has, the responsibility that he has to shepherd is within the confines of those who have been allotted to his care, the ones among him in that local body. By the way, this is one of the reasons practically that our elders have chosen to have a formal membership process. It's obvious that there is no passage in the New Testament that says thou shalt have a membership class. Uh, I hope you understand that. Why have we done that? 
it, it's the heart of that is, is this right here, because we need to know as elders uh, who are the sheep that are allotted to our charge, the, those among us. And the membership process is simply a practical way for those uh, to be identified. And this is a big deal because in Hebrews 13, 17, listen to this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, listen to this, as those who will give an account. They're going to give an account for how they have kept watch over you. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's pretty scary to me, that, that, that there's going to be an, a, an accountability for this. And so the, the membership process is a way to say, who are those sheep for whom I'm accountable, and who are the leaders that the sheep are submitting themselves to specifically. So those words, among you, are important because it helps us define, narrow down the role of each local elder team. You can also look at places like Romans 16. It's clear that the, the people in each local church were known. Just listen to the, the number of personal names that the Apostle Paul greets or speaks to that he knows are part of the church of Rome. It is a biblical concept to, to be attached to a local body and for those people to be known as being a part of that local body. Now, at this point... Peter moves from the command to shepherd. I don't want us to lose that. Remember, that is the command. We're going to be talking about things that flow out of that, but keep shepherding in your mind. But he's going to move from the command to itself, itself to the fulfillment of that command. What does it look like for a person to shepherd? How is the team of elders to shepherd the flock of God among them? And so we're going to look at two facets of this command. The first is the fulfillment of the command. How? How are elders to shepherd? He begins in verse 2 again, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. So this, this now is one of the primary implications of shepherding. This is obvious that shepherds, just as shepherds stand over a field of sheep and they are there to, to give oversight to that group, that flock. So under shepherds are to do the same. But notice this is very, very important. The command in the text is to shepherd the flock of God. The implication of that command is exercising oversight and not the other way around. You see the emphasis. The emphasis is that elders would be shepherds. And yes, part of that shepherding means there is some delegated authority to those elders to exercise oversight over that body. But we can't get that flipped. And if we get that flipped, we get in trouble. The command is shepherd the flock of God among you, and part of that shepherding will include necessarily a level of oversight bound to the text of Scripture. But now he's going to explain this oversight. How, does, how would a shepherd oversee a flock versus a, a dictator? That's, that's what we're going to see here. Three instructions that explain this exercising of oversight. He's going to begin with the negative and move to the positive. Three different times he'll tell us what we should not do as elders and what we should do as elders. So let's look at these three instructions. The instruction number one is lead voluntarily. Lead voluntarily. He begins with the negative. Look back at the text. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under Compulsion, not under compulsion. 
To be an elder or pastor is not simply a job or an occupation. It's a privilege and a calling. And the elders who serve in that capacity should do so willingly with a readiness to serve without having to be forced into that role, not under compulsion. In fact, the, the first qualification in 1 Timothy 3, if you remember, we went through this, was the fact that that man has to desire the work of eldering. He has to desire that work. You know, the truth is, the work of eldering or pastoring can be very difficult, can be very taxing at times. And many men find themselves disillusioned with pastoral ministry because they get into ministry driven solely by a desire to preach. They're gifted to preach, they love to preach, and it's easy to think that that is all you do as a pastor. All through seminary, this person pictures himself behind the pulpit week after week laboring to preach the word and the people smiling with receptivity. And I'll do that over and over again until the Lord calls me home. But then they graduate from seminary and they go to their first ministry position and they spend the entirety of their first day trying to help two church members come to an agreement over the color of the carpet in the foyer. And they think to themselves... There were no classes in seminary on carpet arbitration. I I don't know how to do this. This is not what I signed up for. This, by the way, is why it's so important for local elders to be trained within the local church. It's not to say there's no place for seminary, but that ought to be done in conjunction with hands-on training within the local church. And the reason is because, again, the qualification, the first one, the only internal qualification is that you desire the work. The way that a man is going to be able to lead without having to be compulsed into that is if he understands what the nature of the work really is before he gets into it and has a genuine God-given desire to do that work. Think of it this way. Picture a little boy. He goes to his first rodeo. And he sits there and he watches in awe as the cowboys ride their horses with such skill around the arena. As they they use a rope and they they hit their their target every time. And he thinks to himself, when I grow up, I want to be just like that guy. I want to be a cowboy. And so after the rodeo, he waits in line and he goes up to to one of the cowboys that he particularly admires. And and once he gets to him, he says, sir, when I grow up, I want to do exactly what you do. Will you please teach me? Teach me to be a cowboy. And to his surprise, the cowboy smiles and says, Sure, son, I'd love to. Why don't you have your dad bring you to my barn in the morning, and we'll get started. The boy says, Great. And he runs home, and he tells his dad, Dad, you're not going to believe it. So the next morning, he gets up. He puts on his wranglers and his boots and his hat, and he walks out, and his dad takes him there. He gets there early, and sure enough, here's the cowboy. He comes walking out of the barn, extends his hand, shakes the young man's hand, and says, Come on into the barn. The boy walks into the barn, and on the wall, there's at least a dozen ropes hanging there to choose from. He's he's like a kid in Disneyland, and he takes off running across the barn to grab one of the ropes. But before he is able to reach out his hand, he hears the voice of the cowboy say, Hold on there, son. And he turns around, and the cowboy hands him a shovel. And he says, Before you learn how to use that rope, you've got to learn how to use this shovel. In the same way, shepherds should not reach for the pulpit if they're not willing to live life with the sheep. Those who would seek to take on this sacred task should not 
think that the only role is to stand behind a podium and to teach. That will certainly be a part of it. It's a major part of equipping the saints. But the shepherd is called to live with the sheep, to love the sheep, to get dirty with the sin of the sheep and helping them work through the the issues in their lives to help them to follow Christ. This is the work of the shepherd. The shepherd then, in training, has to understand what he's being called to do and desire that work. And then he'll be able to do it, not under compulsion, but instead, we move to the positive, voluntarily. Voluntarily. Look back at the text and how Peter phrases it. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Voluntarily is the idea of willingly. And this is the kind of shepherding that flows out of, out of a, the heart of a man who loves Christ and loves his people and understands the nature of the work and desires that work, the good and the difficult. But secondly, there's another instruction on what it looks like to lead as a shepherd. And Peter says you have to lead with eagerness. Lead with eagerness. Again, he begins with the negative. He says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, as if to say, this is how God would have you lead. And secondly, and not for sordid gain. And not for sordid gain. As I said earlier, the Bible makes it clear that it is right that, that, that some uh, elders may be paid to be able to focus their full efforts on that task. But, but no elder, paid or unpaid, should ever seek the role of elder for financial gain. In the New Testament, it's clear that one of the primary signs of a false teacher is the love of money. Peter, of course, is not condemning the honest desire to support your family, but he is condemning the practice of taking advantage of God's people to swindle them out of their money. And we all, unfortunately, have seen examples of how that can happen. Some have been negligent in their duties and they've used their position sinfully to line their own pockets. This is not to be the motive for the elder. Instead, instead of reaching for this for sordid gain, he says positively he's to do it with eagerness. Eagerness. So not only voluntarily, but eagerly, freely. The, the elder's enthusiasm for ministry then, again, has to come from a deep love for Christ and a deep love for people rather than a love for money and financial gain. His eyes, like Peter's, have to be on the eternal weight of glory that awaits him, not the temporal earthly riches that come through money. Our desire then in this role has to be for the glory of God, not for personal wealth or fame. And of course that's true of of every Christian. We serve, we love God's people, we're part of the ministries of the church. We worship not for gain for ourselves, but for the glory of God. But now Peter gives a third and final instruction on how elders are to shepherd. And the third instruction is this, lead by example. Lead by example. Again, he begins with the negative, and he says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. This is crucial. Again, notice the the command is shepherding. The implication of the command is oversight. And when we get that right, we come away with this understanding. 
And that is that that oversight is not to be heavy-handed. We're not to lead as dictators over Christ's people. It's true that God has given elders leadership. He's given them a delegated authority within the confines of Scripture. But that leadership is to be exercised with gentleness, with humility, with patience, with compassion, with, by the hand of a shepherd, and not with the overbearing rod of the dictator. One of the most common ways that elders sin in this regard is when they, they unfortunately go beyond what is written. That's why I keep saying we have to confine ourselves to the text of Scripture. It is not my role to take the applications of Scripture that I have come up with and then force those upon you. That's where heavy-handedness comes from, and that's where you can cross the line of shepherd to dictator. The shepherd takes the word of God that you might hear the voice of Christ calling to you through the Scriptures and says, Obey the chief shepherd. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. But how can we be sure as elders that we're not leading as lording it over the people? Well, it's by taking seriously the positive aspect of this instruction. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Proving to be examples to the flock. Elders... It might seem obvious, but it's worth saying explicitly, are to lead by example. It, it comes, goes without saying, having looked at the qualifications of elders, but, but those qualifications make it clear that the congregation ought to be able to look to the life of that man, though not a perfect man, but a faithful man, and if they follow the patterns, his spiritual disciplines and his patterns in following the Lord, they ought to grow in likeness. He ought to lead them by example. That the pastor cannot be one who preaches something on Sunday but refuses to submit himself to that teaching and how he lives his daily life. Remember, this is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, he says, just as I also am of Christ. We ought to be able to live a life worthy of imitation. But again, the reason is the same as it was true for Paul. The reason that, that a life can be worthy of imitation is because it's faithfully a model of Christ. Again, the focus is on Christ. But the elders ought to live in such a way that they exemplify spiritual maturity and the people can follow that example and grow. So this then, as we take it all together, is the role of the elder in this passage in summary. He is to shepherd God's people by providing voluntary, eager, and exemplary oversight. The elder's role is to shepherd God's people by providing voluntary, eager, and exemplary oversight. And what Peter says now is that for those elders who do that well, again, remember from the passage in Hebrews, that they will be held accountable for how they lead. Peter says now there's a promise that comes with this command. This is facet number two, the promise of the command. Look back at chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now notice again that term chief shepherd. This is 
This, I believe, is the only place in the New Testament where that title is given to Christ. Of course, we have the good shepherd. We have these references to Christ as a shepherd. But here he refers to him as the chief shepherd, which again helps us understand that pastors, elders are under shepherds, that Christ never relinquishes his headship over the church. It is Christ who's committed to building his church, and that's where our confidence rests. But this chief shepherd is constantly overseeing the operations of every local church, and that's why he will hold accountable every under-shepherd for how they have led in their role. And here, he he focuses on those who apparently have led well. For those who lead well, he says, from the chief shepherd, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Every pastor, elder that's faithful to these instructions will receive this crown of glory. But what is this crown? There's a lot of debate on that in commentaries as you read over this. I think it's very difficult to be dogmatic as to what the crown is because he doesn't give us enough detail. But remember that in the Roman culture, a a victorious athlete would often receive a crown. And that crown, in that case, was made of leaves, and so it would fade away. It would die. That's the importance here of the word unfading. This is not like a human crowd that will, crown that will fade away. This is an eternal crown, a reward. And he calls it a crown, secondly, a crown of glory. So what is it? Well, it's one of two things. It may simply refer to the, the, the eternal weight of glory that awaits every believer when we, we enter into Christ's presence and we are made completely as he is, glorified in that sense. And certainly that is more than enough. No one needs more than that. That is a gracious gift on behalf of God that none of us deserve. But I think the context here seems to indicate that perhaps there's more. It's it's focused, it's targeted here towards those elders, pastors who serve well. And so it may be that in an amazing display of God's grace that there is some kind of eternal reward here involved for those who serve well in this capacity. Now think about that. The Bible speaks of rewards for believers. And just think about getting a reward from Christ. Think about grace upon grace. It is God who chose you from eternity past, if you're in Christ. It is God who sent his son to pay the penalty for your sins. It is God then who in time drew you to himself through the gospel, justified you, sanctified you, and glorified you, brought you to himself, and now he says, oh yeah, and I'm going to give you a gift. This is grace. Yes, we serve the Lord, but why? Where does the strength come from? Where does the desire to come from? It's all from the Lord. This is grace upon grace. And so if it is in fact that God gives some gift to pastors for faithfulness, the glory of that crown will go to Christ. Because everyone there will know, even more than they do now, that the only reason there's any kind of gift given is because of Christ, the chief shepherd. What a glorious Savior we serve. Let me ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you know the chief shepherd? The one who lavishes grace upon grace. No sooner, it's just like the waves of the ocean. No sooner has one left and the sand has just resettled that another hits the shore. That's the grace of Christ. Have you personally come as a sinner to recognize your true condition before God? 
that as you are on your own as a sinner, you deserve the wrath of God, not the grace of God. That if God gave you what you deserved, it would be eternal punishment in hell. Have you come to that place, friend? But have you also come to the place of understanding that God has made gracious provision in his son Jesus Christ for you? That through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, every person who repents of their sins and puts their faith in Jesus Christ alone because of the sacrifice he made, they can come to have true eternal life and salvation. Do you know the chief shepherd? I pray this morning, if you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would turn to him in faith, repenting of your sin, believing not in your own goodness or your own abilities, but in the perfect sacrifice of Christ as your only hope. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the goodness of the chief shepherd. This is why Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? I lay down my life for my sheep. As we draw our time to a close, there are a myriad of ways, of course, that we could apply this to ourselves, but I just want to break it into two. Obviously, the most prominent application would be to those who are either elders or who would aspire to eldership at some point. And so let me speak to those who are either in that role or aspiring to that role and and ask you to evaluate the character of your leadership. Evaluate the character of your leadership. How do you know if you would shepherd the flock of God as a shepherd and not a dictator? How do you know? Well, Look at the spheres of life right now that God has given to you over which you have authority. Your family, your marriage, your kids, in business. How do you treat the people who are under your earthly authority now? Begin to shepherd those people. In fact, we have commands to treat them in that way. We're to love our, hus- our, our wives. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We're to raise our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Look at the areas of your life over which you have authority and ask yourself, do I lead as a dictator or as a shepherd? Do I d- demonstrate humility in my leadership? Is it voluntary and eager or is it just cumbersome and a burdensome weight? Do the people who I lead feel like they're a burden to me that I wish was off my back? Or do they feel as those that I'm grateful that God has given to me and delegated to my care? This is how we as elders are to think of the people, the special people of God. And as Christians, it's how we're to think about anybody that God would place under our earthly leadership to care for them with humility, demonstrating the character of Christ. But secondly... For all of us, I would encourage you to evaluate your love for Christ's flock. Evaluate your love for these people here in this room. Do you think of the people in our church as belonging to God? Do you serve them with your gifts? Do you pray for them? Do you you tend to gravitate only to those in the body that are easy for you to relate to? Or do you realize that every person with all of our quirkiness, and we all have quirks, all of us, if you're in Christ, are called the people of God, the flock of God. So do you push past the awkwardness and perhaps the quirkiness of others to love them as true children of God? Out of love for Christ, do you love them? You do remember that our Savior told us that this is how we ought to be known. John 13, 34 and 35. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's my prayer that we all would take seriously the commands of the chief shepherd, that we would see the people of God as the flock of God, and that that would affect the tone of voice that we use with them, the way that we talk to them, about them, pray for them, serve them, and the list goes on. And may we do it with joy and an ever-increasing anticipation for the day in which we will graze in the eternal pasture under the gaze of the chief shepherd. But until that day, may we serve him well.